0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Development as a congregation, I was inspired to see the concepts of maximum factor and minimum factor are indeed biblical. As we know, as we heard last week, through the pens of the New Testament writers... Christ takes time in various congregations to show them where their strengths and where their weaknesses are. We were presented with examples where congregations were instructed to work on those specific items that we today label as the minimum factor. The churches in Revelation are great examples of report cards on congregations. Given by Christ through John, their strengths And their weaknesses. But we see similar examples, as noted in last week's message, in places like Corinth and Ephesus, specifically what we've studied last week. As we consider the growth of the church, our focus shouldn't be specifically on numbers, but rather in doing God's work, specifically preparing ourselves for the coming of the bridegroom and the spreading of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God in areas where we have influence. As we consider church growth, and as we've been considering it for some months now, there are two aspects to church growth. There is the qualitative growth of those who are here, and there's the quantitative growth of those who may join us. We have no control over the second. We have control over the qualitative growth of ourselves and the work that we do in spreading the message to whoever may hear it. And then as we know, John 6, verse 44, God does the calling. But in addition to preparing ourselves to be the bride of Christ, the other reason for character growth in addressing the minimum factor is so that we become a place God can bring new believers to. Think back to your work environment. Workplaces welcome new employees all the time. How does your workplace integrate new employees into their new position, into their new job? Most likely, new employees train with the best employees of the department. The ones who can patiently teach them. The ropes. The ones that will convey a positive image about the company. The ones that will show a positive and active work ethic so that they can model the better employees and incorporate themselves into a positive work environment. One that models attention to detail that will set them off on a successful path with their new employer. As God calls new people to the faith, we recognize that there are many true believers out there. There We belong to, we attend here with the Church of God International, but there are many true believers in many churches of God that are out there. We recognize that. We are but one group of many Sabbath-keeping churches of God that exist. When God calls someone into the faith, we should want to be that employee to whom he entrusts his new recruit. Not to grow our numbers here and feel good about ourselves, but that God has entrusted a believer to our care. Turn with me to begin to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. And we'll pick it up in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and make a pretense for long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of Hades as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And Christ continues, we'll have a chance to work through these, this section of scripture later, but he continues to enumerate these, this, these rebukes of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now it may seem strange to turn here as we are talking about church growth, as we are talking about the qualitative growth of ourselves as individuals and as a congregation as we prepare to evangelize. In ways that we haven't done before. Christ doesn't seem to be even talking to believers here. He seems to be talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's addressing them. In fact, he is rebuking those who are actively working against him. We certainly aren't Pharisees. So when we read these, we read these from that's them... Those are the Pharisees. We're not like the Pharisees. Those are, Christ is rebuking that group that we have labeled as become, become known as the Pharisees. He can't be talking to us, He's talking to them, right? Today, I would like to continue our work on the minimum factor by studying these reprimands of the Pharisees to see what we can learn about what God expects of us. Are we the employees to whom God can entrust? new followers. And what do these severe rebukes have to do with that whole concept? So let's begin a few pages back. Let's just lay some groundwork here. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And just see, I'd like to lay a little bit of foundation here as to where this section of scripture that we just read comes into play. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 17. Now Jesus, Matthew 20, verse 17, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So he's... Been outside of Jerusalem. He's now about to go with his disciples into Jerusalem to begin the inevitable crucifixion process. Chapter 21 and verse 1. Now when they came, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Beth Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sailing on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. And we can read the, the, the account there. And this is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And it coincides with the selection, as we know, of the Lamb on the tenth day of the first month. When you go back to the account in Exodus, when they were to select the Lamb four days before Passover and care for it. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem coincides with that day where Christ came and became started the crucifixion process four days before Passover. Dropping down to verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to them, "Let fruit grow; let no fruit grow on you ever again." And immediately the fig tree withered away. So we now, in the time context, for the next day. So this is three days before Passover. The, the account continues because it says here one day later. Now, dropping just a few chapters forward to chapter twenty-six, and in verse one, it came to pass. Matthew 26 and verse 1 When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So here we see it is now two days before Passover. So we consider where we read in Matthew 20 through to Matthew 26. This, this takes place over a two day period, just a couple of days before Passover. Events like the entry into Jerusalem that we read about. Events like we didn't read, but we glanced over. The cleansing of the temple. The cursing of the fig tree. A few parables that Christ incorporated into the teaching on those days. Debates with the Pharisees. He had debated with the Pharisees in reference to Caesar's coin and the image of Caesar. And to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Then he had a and a session with the Sadducees where the Sadducees... Who didn't believe in the resurrection asked him if a man had married seven times, and in, in the uh, the Leveret law, if he married uh, someone died and he married a brother married the wife and continued on, to whom would she be married in the kingdom? We recall that conversation that took place then. The Olivet prophecy in Matthew 24, with the the uh, end time pro- prophecies that we see listed there, the, the famous parables of the ten virgins and the talents in Matthew 25. These all took place within this 2-day time period from his entry into where we pick it up in Matthew 26 when the the process takes the next step. So these were very eventful to a 2-day period where he did a lot of teaching both by words and deeds. Now let's go back to Matthew 13. We're just sort of setting the stage for what we want to talk about. Matthew chapter 13. Earlier in his ministry, he was asked by his disciples in verse 10 of Matthew 13 why he spoke in parables. This was a, a teaching tool that we know he used extensively. And the disciples asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11 of Matthew 13 begins his answer. He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to, them, to know the mysteries of the kingdom, But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then he goes on to quote Isaiah, And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed, he continues, are your eyes, for they shall see, for they see, and your eyes for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. There's a critical principle we read here. As we read through the teachings of Christ, as we start here and proceed through the Gospels in our reading of the teaching of Christ, there's a critical principle here that we cannot forget. Christ spoke to many groups of people. We see he spoke at various points to the multitude, specifically to the twelve disciples, sometimes to the three, sometimes to the Pharisees, sometimes to the Sadducees, sometimes to them as a group, sometimes to the Essenes were also part part of the, the crowd. But he always was speaking to those to whose eyes he was opening. We see that here. Why do you speak in parables? Because you have been given the mysteries of the kingdom. They're, I'm not giving it to them. I'm speaking to you. To those whose minds I am opening, to those whose eyes I'm applying eye salve, I'm speaking to you. So if you are understanding, it means I'm speaking to you. If you have no idea, it just becomes a debate like he had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So as we consider Christ's teachings, we note here that he was speaking to those whose eyes he was opening. So let's go back to Matthew 23 and consider these woes, these rebukes of the Pharisees. Matthew 23. And again, continuing to set the stage in verse 13. But woe to you. Now, the word woe is the Greek word ouaye. And now there's things on the computer that you can actually punch it in and get an actual Greek person saying it back to you. So I listened to that this morning. It's close. I probably don't have it exactly right, but it's ouaye. 3759. It's spelled O-U-A-I. O-U-A-I. And it's a primary expression of grief. So while it is used here in a rebuke, The entire context takes not just anger, but grief and sadness into account. And we can consider that as a combination of God's anger and sadness at his people that continue to disobey him, continue to walk and misbehave. Remember, these were his covenant people for centuries and millennia. These were his covenant people. And while he had divorced them, which we see in in the Old Testament prophecies, and he granted them the, the divorce, really, that they so clearly desired. He didn't want to divorce them. But they clearly, clearly through their, their infidelity with other gods, clearly wanted a divorce. He granted that to them. But the key to understanding these woes is found in the first 12 verses previously. In verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now just to to step in there, the phylacteries were small boxes, that contained scriptures that were worn either on the arms or kind of strapped around and, and hung down between your eyes. And you can reference uh, Exodus chapter 13 as and verse 9 as a scripture that they took and turned into these phylacteries that they made people wear. They, there was about four different verses, I believe, that were part of the phylacteries and that were either kept on your arm or between the frontlets of your eyes. And you can see that back in Exodus 13 verse 9. They extrapolated uh, uh, from there. In fact, let's just turn there. Rather than talk about it, let's just turn. Hold your finger there. Exodus 13, and verse 9. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And from there... They turned that into what was called phylacteries, where they would actually have written scriptures written on pieces of paper that were hung in a little box between their eyes or on their arms. The borders of their garments, that's also referred to here. They enlarged the border of uh, borders of their garments, were tassels that were to be worn, and we and there are people that still wear tassels attached to their garments as as a reminder, as a physical reminder that we need to follow God's laws. And you can find that. In Numbers chapter 15 and in verse 38, as one of the examples is where that's found. Back to Matthew 23, verse 5 But all their works they do to be seen by men, to make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men rabbi, rabbi. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's specifically showing them how to behave. We see here he's telling them these Pharisees have been set up in Moses' seat. So if what you hear from them matches up with what you read in Scripture, or what you hear from Scripture, you can follow that. But don't follow them, because they, exi- they don't follow what they say. They don't practice what they preach. And here's some examples. So here he spends some time talking to the multitude and to his disciples. That's what he says in verse 1. That's who it's addressed to, to the multitude and to the disciples. Using the Pharisees' behavior as a teaching point. But this was to the multitude and to the disciples. Verse 13, he then turns his attention to the Pharisees, and that's where we pick up the story with each of these woes. So let's walk through some of these woes and see what he is trying to teach the multitudes and the disciples by using the behavior of the Pharisees as an example. Woe to you, scribes! And Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And we've talked about this before. This is not, God's way is not an exclusive club for special people. That we hold the keys to the doors and we only allow special people to walk in. People that have have, have been vetted and passed the grade and 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 look the part and act the part and are perfect and are waiting and are don't really uh, Christ mentions that this is a uh, he he's a he's a doctor searching for uh, to to heal people this is not for uh, I, I may, I'm misquoting it but this is not an exclusive club looking for special people Christ has opened this up to all people and here the behavior of the pharisees was such that they were turning this into a special club. That you had to be follow their rules. Never mind what we find in scripture. Let's follow our rules. And what they were doing, in effect, was shutting down the kingdom. Christ came, we read in John 3.16, to open, have, offer salvation to all people. But what the Pharisees were doing in their actions, and we'll continue to see that, is that they were shutting down the kingdom to all people. They are actually working against God's intentions. Matthew chapter, keep your finger here, keep a mark here, we'll be back and forth here throughout the the message. Matthew 16. Let's go back and read a, a passage in Matthew 16. What the Pharisees were doing, they were making it an exclusive club and made the rules according to their levels of comfort. So rather than follow pages of Scripture, they were making up the rules as they went along, according to their comfort, and in effect, keeping themselves out of the kingdom, and then teaching others to follow the same path. Matthew 16, verse 19, cutting into the context, to Peter, Christ says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Christ came to open the doors of the kingdom. To teach people what this kingdom was all about. What the prophets had been trying to teach. And nobody nobody listened. Nobody understood. And he came to open the doors of the kingdom wide. For anyone who would choose to obey his laws. For anyone who would choose to follow and obey his laws. The doors of the kingdom were wide open. And the keys were given to the apostles to open this up. To all who would listen. Back to... Matthew 23, his rebuke was that they were actually shutting these doors. While Christ came to open them, they were trying on the backside to shut those same doors through their actions. And they wouldn't be going in because of their actions. And if anyone were to follow them, they also would not be going in. So he's teaching them not to become an impasse for those who are seeking God, when we are here in this, in this, as we are proceeding through our journey, we cannot become an impasse to people who are following, trying to find God. So, as we, as a congregation, as we proceed down this path of of becoming, becoming, uh, uh, becoming better, better Christians, becoming a better congregation, becoming a better family. And opening our doors and preaching the gospel to where we can and in our, the areas that we affect. We need to make sure that when we welcome people here, we are following scripture, that we cannot become an impasse for those who are seeking God. Verse 14, the next woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and make a pretense, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Here again, and what we're going to see was he's really talking about character and behavior. And trying to teach what proper character should be with an example of those who had improper character. And here he's talking, this woe here, is woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You devour widows' houses and make up and for a pretense make long prayers so again having everybody focus on them i can pray i i i am a righteous person because i can pray and pray and pray and pray and i make merchandise in the background while i look righteous and make a pretense for long prayers and i look like a righteous person in the background i'm really making merchandise of god's people and we're taking advantage of those like the widows who can't help themselves. And we know from, the, prophet, from the, the Apostle James, over in James 1, what Christ says about true religion. So while the Pharisees were setting themselves up to look like they were very religious, what they were really doing was acting contrary to what true religion is. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. True religion encompasses truth, keeping oneself pure and in line with truth, and looking out for those who cannot help themselves. Looking out for those who have trouble helping themselves, so that flies in the face of what the Pharisees were practicing when they were looking religious, playing the part, but then in the background were making merchandise of the widows, so he's setting them up again as an example as we as they developed as a church as they developed as as, as people that this was something for them to Model, uh, not model, to work to work to to set up as an example, not to not to not to follow. Verse fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So, as we're working through these, let's consider as we grow, as we work on our minimum factor, and. For us, as described by the survey responses from all of us here, it was really in proclaiming the gospel in our area and welcoming new people and and having new believers listen and hear the word of God. So as we consider that, we see here that what they were doing and all of their actions, and we'll continue to see these actions play out through these woes, that they would welcome one in And with their actions and what they were teaching, it was better that they didn't even welcome him at all. they never even heard of the Pharisees, never heard of this truth. Because they were making it twice as bad than if they had just never even heard of this at all. Mark chapter 7. Imagine being told that it would have been better had you not done anything and found these people. It would have been better had they never even heard of you because you've made it twice as bad. Mark chapter 7. Quoting Isaiah in verse 6. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God... You hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things as you do. So here, with the pretense of having the Hebrew Scriptures, what they did was they were making up their own rules, teaching their own doctrine, contrary to Scripture, or in addition to Scripture, and holding people accountable to stuff that was not in, not in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Pharisees taught their own ways, and thus became an impasse for people who were seeking God's ways. Stuff for us to consider as we work on our minimum factor. Back to chapter twenty. Back to Matthew twenty-three, verse sixteen. Woe to you blind guides, who say, "And this is, this builds off of what we just talked about as well." Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. That's a really long way of saying something very simple. That they make up their own rules as they go along. That... We'll make up stuff that it's okay to do this at the temple, but not okay to do this in the temple, when really that can't be found anywhere in Scripture. And it's confusing, but it can be easily picked apart by folks with the Holy Spirit, like Christ is saying here, and he's he's clearly pointing out the, the, the lack of logic that is in what they are saying there. To make up their own rules as they go along, and a simple understanding of God's way can poke holes in the complete lack of logic. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 4. This is something that they should, they would have known, they would have read this, they would have known this, they knew their their Hebrew scriptures, we know that. But they were not applying it. And they were becoming an impasse and a blockage to people who were trying to find God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. They were guilty, back to, you can flip back, they were guilty by the very law that they claimed to uphold. They were adding laws that clearly weren't there, and holding people accountable to those laws. They weren't holding them to accountable to the laws that were in the in Scripture, but they were really holding them accountable to the laws that, that they were making up and weren't even there. And that by their own Scripture, they were adding to something that should never be added to. Verse 23. We'll come back and sort of tie this together once we get through these woes. Verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, blind guides, that's the second time he mentions blind guides, who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now this straining, they would, in practice, strain their wine, strain their vinegar, strain their liquids that they would drink and use because they did not want to unknowingly swallow an insect that could be, could be in there. So they would use, they would use uh, um, a gauze-like material to strain their liquids, to strain their vinegar, their wine, so they would not unknowingly swallow an insect. But by misapplying God's way in teaching others, what they were doing was the equivalent of basically feasting on unclean food right before God in His throne room. That was what the—that's what they are saying. That's what Christ was saying there. You're worried about all the little things, but by missing the bigger picture, you might as well uh, serve a camel right in the throne room of God. And we see that this is again something they should have known. Back to Micah chapter six. Micah chapter six. This is all part of their, their penchant for creating things beyond Scripture to make themselves seem more righteous and to put burdens and pressure unnecessarily on God's people. Micah chapter 6. God covers the weightier matters of the law along with the fine points of his law here through his prophets. And they would have known this. Matthew, Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before God? Justice, mercy, and faith have always been part of the law of God. As much as the Sabbath and tithing and all of the other intricate parts of the law... Justice, mercy, and faith was something they should have already known, and they should have already been practicing. Because a true understanding of God's ways do not separate the adherence to law from the caring of others. God's way involves love and obedience. And these are complementary, not exclusive. Moving on, and again, as I say, we'll come back and sort of tie tie these together. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Again, this all involves character and following God's ways. Cleansing the outside, working on the outside, making, as, we, as we read earlier, making the, the outside look good, making me look righteous. But inside, I haven't changed. I'm not putting on the character of God, the Holy Spirit. I'm not allowing the Holy Spirit to change me. I'm looking nice. I can come on Sabbath to the synagogue or to, to, the, to the service and look like I'm righteous, and say all the right words, and, and say all the right things, and perform, perform whatever function we, we do it in the synagogue or in the service. Here we're, he's talking to the Pharisees, but in, in our minds, perform whatever function we do in the service. But inside, I'm just the same guy every day, and I'm not allowing the Holy Spirit to, to change me. That was something he wanted noted for his followers. Romans chapter 12. Brother Bernard was there earlier. Romans chapter 12. This is really what Christ was talking about and wanted wanted known. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, verse 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This continues to be about building godly character. This continues to be Christ's message through these woes is about building godly character. As children of God, we should not make excuses for lack of development. The Holy Spirit empowers us to change, to be transformed, and then once we're transformed, we help others become transformed. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." This whitewashed tombs, the custom of the day was on an annual basis, they would whitewash the headstones or whatever they would use as tombstones to make them look beautiful on an annual basis. And, you know, we know the sun, the impact of weather and what that would do. But on an annual basis, they would all get a nice, nice whitewash. And every year, all the tombs would look nice and brand new. From a spiritual standpoint, the blood of the lambs symbolically covered, when we look back to into the Hebrew scriptures, and the blood of the lamb symbolically covered the sins of the people. Much like whitewash covers up dirt. Nice coat of paint makes it look brand new. But underneath is where the truth lies. Now let's go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5. This is the message, 1 John 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And Christ was using this motif of the whitewashed tombs in a similar fashion to how the, the, the transition from the blood of the lambs, covering the sins of the people on an annual basis, much like the whitewash of the tombs would be done on an annual basis, to true Christianity, where Christ came to cleanse us of our sins. So it was was an actual cleaning, not a covering. And we see the difference. And that's really what Christ was trying to tell the Pharisees, that their actions is basically whitewashing the outside of of the tomb, making the outside look nice, but really you're you're, you're full of dead men's bones. When you haven't changed the inside, when you haven't allowed the Holy Spirit to change you, You're a dead man. Your bones are dead. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, All these things will come upon this generation. And he's telling them you claim the Hebrew Scriptures and the Hebrew prophets as your own. You claim them as your own. And you claim their messages as your own. But you don't do what they say. You honor the Old Testament prophets, you refer back to the Hebrew Scriptures but you don't do anything that they say. How can you set them up and honor them and don't do anything that they say? It doesn't, it's, it's completely illogical. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verse 23, Christ said, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Then dropping down to chapter five and chapter fifteen and verse five, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. And it should be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you will bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And as the Father loved me, I also have loved you and abided my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We can claim connections with the teachers of Scripture by doing what they say. That was Christ's message by using setting up the Pharisees as as an example as he did in Matthew 23. Often he back to Matthew 23, on numerous occasions he referred to them as blind guides. Blind guides. These were leaders of their people. This was quite a castigation to call them blind guides. These were those who were looked up as leaders. They sat in, as as we look back in verse 2, they sat in Moses' seat. They were looked up to as part of the priesthood and part of the leaders of, of the people. That they, Christ, called them blind guides was quite a rebuke. We don't follow people who can't read a map. We don't follow people who can't read a map. There are people that can get around. Ray makes his living by getting around. Other people couldn't read a map if it was written in, in English words. Those are not the people to follow. If I'm picking out people here, to, it says here, follow me, I'm gonna, Ray would be on my list of someone to follow because he makes his living with directions. Here, Christ was pointing out these people that you're following, they're blind. Don't be following people that can't read the map. The map is clear. The map makes sense. Don't follow them if you can't if, don't follow people who can't read the map learn how to read the map from someone who knows how to read maps so as the pharisees were leading people they had no place leading people because they they couldn't explain god's way in fact they were becoming an impasse they were they were becoming an ob- obstacle to people's journey with god then spend your time teaching others how to read maps themselves, so they can continue teaching others how to read the right map. When we look through these woes, we look through these rebukes of the the scribes and the Pharisees here, we see that it really revolves around treatment of others, treatment of others, and becoming truly transformed, as we heard in the sermonette, by God's word. How we treat others, and how we change ourselves. How we become transformed by through the Holy Spirit by God's Word. Why is this so important to understand? Because this is what God expects new converts to see in us. When He brings people into our congregation, when He brings them here, they want to. They're looking for God. They're looking to see what we teach, how it has transformed. The people that are here. They're here looking. And God expects them to see us reflecting His ways, not our ways. Not our ways. That our actions are a reflection of Scripture. Now, some Pharisees did convert. We see, we, this was not a, when we're talking here, I'm talking here that these woes were really talking to the multitudes. using the Pharisees as an example, as parents, as children, we were all children. So let's not... We'll go back to... Go back to your childhood. When your brother or your sister or someone else in the classroom, if you were a single child, perhaps it was in school, when someone else was getting in trouble, when someone else was really getting in trouble, when someone else was really getting in trouble, for the next week, two weeks, we were on our best behavior because we... While mom and dad were yelling at them, it was a lesson for us because we wouldn't do the exact same thing. Heeding the rebuke of others is an important part of scripture. So while Christ was rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees, he was talking to his people. He was talking to the multitude. He was talking to disciples. And he was using their extremely bad example as a way to teach his people how to become. Not to be an impasse. Not to make up your own rules. Not to hold the people accountable for things that God doesn't hold people accountable for. And we see that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And for purposes here, let's just drop down to verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So as Christ is setting up the Pharisees and pointing out and castigating and rebuking them for their extremely Extremely bad behavior. He was doing it in front of the multitude. And in front of his disciples. So that while he's berating these people for their extremely bad behavior, the message is over here to those who are listening. To those who have the keys to the kingdom. To those whose eyes are being opened. So if your eyes are being opened, you don't need to be castigated directly by Christ. You can hear him castigating this group of people over here and make some mental notes that, We're not going to be like this. And again, thinking back to when we were young and mom and dad was disciplining a brother or a sister. It made us sit up, it made us take note and adjust our own behavior lest we receive that same rebuke. And we see that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2 where we finished off last week. And we see these reports on these seven churches. And while each entry was to a different church, each entry finished with a reminder to pay attention to what was being said to all the churches. Because because the characteristics listed here can be slipped into by any Christian the weaknesses that were being pointed out here. And we see that. Verse 7 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this case here, it was about losing their first love, which we talked about last week. And when we follow all seven churches, verse 11 of chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you follow that through all the way through chapter 3, we see that it was a reminder that Whatever God was saying to each church can be applied to all Christians. And we see that as we work through these woes, these castigations that Christ, these rebukes that Christ was conveying to his people by using the example of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now there are other encounters of rebuke. We don't have time to go through them. I can list them here for you. Luke chapter 6, verse 24 to 26 is another example of where Christ Listed some rebukes. Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 38 is another extensive list of, of woes. It was clearly at a different time period. There were different times where he did this. This was at a different point in time because on this particular instance, he had a private meal with one of the Pharisees. And Pharisees invited, a Pharisee invited him into his home to have a meal with him, and then he proceeded to list some, some rebukes to him. Luke chapter 17, verse 1, and even the final three trumpets are known as the three woes. We find that in Revelation chapter eight. And again, while this the lessons were to those who had the who were being given the mysteries of the kingdom, the, the multitude and the disciples. Some Pharisees did convert. Some these we have the example of Nicodemus. Just by way of reference, John chapter three we know that he went to Christ. Let's, turn there. Let's take a few minutes to turn there. That some Pharisees did convert. Nicodemus being a prime example. John chapter three, verse one. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And then we know Christ had that conversation with him on being born of the flesh and being born of the Spirit. When he said we, he was part of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus was, the chief priests and the elders of the people. So this group that was part of, the, that would become part of the crucifixion, they knew from their own mouths here that he was from God. That, that Christ the Messiah was from God. They knew that. They just didn't like what he was preaching because it went against their man-made traditions. It went against what they were trying to teach. So they knew that he was from God. It says here. John chapter 19 shows us that Nicodemus came to the point of answering his calling here by questioning Christ to becoming a convert to this way of life. John chapter 19, as they were burying Christ, verse 38, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, which we just read, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred about pounds. And then they, can, then they went through the, the dealing with the body of Jesus and, and the burial on the, on the preparation day. So here is an example of a, a Pharisee who did convert. The Apostle Paul was also an example of a Pharisee who did convert. But this was still a warning to the evil, Pharise, to the, the evil Pharisees. So as we continue to prepare to be the bride of Christ, we must continue to work on our weaknesses. The weaknesses that we developed, the weaknesses that we uh, made known to each other during this survey. As a group, we've come to know this as our minimum factor. Our minimum factor is determined through our feedback centers around spreading the good news to others in our area of influence. But as we work together in improving this area, we must always be cognizant of what others see in us. We must always be wary of what we look like to others, whether it be outside of these walls or here as they join us. In spreading this message, do people see humble servants of God seeking to provide care for those searching for truth? Or do they see people seeking to glorify themselves and look good before men. That is the message of the woes that Christ rebuked the Pharisees with in the presence of his disciples and the multitude. Will we be self seeking glorification or will we be people that God can entrust his soul, souls of new believers to, to care and nurture? When we see how God rebuked the Pharisees, we need to take these rebukes. And check ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, are we someone to whom God can entrust the caring of new believers? This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at CGIBurlington.org.